I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, and this is season five of the podcast. I've already voted absentee. With election day tomorrow, we already know that we have something to celebrate with a record number of women who ran for office this year. But we also wanted to dive in to discuss how they were covered by the media. Sexist, racist attacks and misinformation about Senator Kamala Harris started circulating within hours after Joe Biden announced that she would be his pick for a running mate. President Trump stoked a false conspiracy theory that she is not eligible to run for vice president. He also called her, quote, angry and a madwoman. Other critics have called her ambitious. We know that the work to have more black, brown and indigenous women in office does not end on Election Day. So how can we stay energized and keep moving forward and hold on to this momentum? We have seen yet again that all elections are important from Congress to school board and our influence as women of color continues to grow every election cycle. Today, we interview Tina Chen and Karen Finney. Tina serves as president and CEO of Times Up Now and the Times Up Foundation overseeing the organization's strategic plans to change culture, companies, and laws in order to make work safe, fair, and dignified for women of all kinds. I had the pleasure of working with Tina in the Obama administration, where she served in many different roles, including assistant to President Barack Obama, the executive director of the White House Council on Women and Girls, and chief of staff to First Lady Michelle Obama. I am so honored to call Karen Finney a friend. Karen is a well-respected Democratic political consultant and was a spokesperson for Secretary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. She is a political commentator for MSNBC and hosted the show Disrupt with Karen Finney. I hope you enjoy this episode. And today I have two of the best political minds joining us. And today we're going to focus on Election Day. We are recording this eight days out. It is so crazy to even say that. But we're going to talk to them about the election, what they think we'll see, what we've really seen with women this campaign cycle in particular. So we have to start in true BGG fashion with asking both of you, how did you get started in politics? Tina, let's start with you. Uh, well, you know, I got started in politics. Actually, the way I got started on especially women's equality politics was right out of college. I found myself after I graduated from college, I got married to a guy from Chicago. That's how I got to Illinois and working for state government in Springfield, Illinois in 1978, which was the year when we were trying to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. And Illinois was the hotbed of American feminism, if you can believe that. (laughs) And so, you know, I learned all about, you know, marching and organizing protests. And we would stand in our our green and white while the anti-forces were in their red and white, you know, circling the rotunda of the state capitol building. Ellie Smeal was there and all sorts of folks. And here I was, a young 20-something, um, really just swept up in all of it. And that's how I got started. And from there, I never stopped. Just working on gender equity issues, on democratic politics. You know, when you live in Chicago, democratic politics is kind of like a full-time, full-contact sport. So, uh, you know, always did that as part of my, you know, work. 
started a group called Cook County Democratic Women, which, you know, was the first organization to support Jan Schakowsky running for office, who's now, you know, an incredible congresswoman and one of our congressional leaders. Um, and along the way, met a guy and his talented wife long enough ago that the three of us can't remember when we first met, which was, you know, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama way, way, way back in the early days of his political career. And that, you know, his, that, wow. and then from there it went. I, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's so fascinating. And with Karen, I met Karen when I had my first job in DC in 2008, I was the assistant to the political director and Karen was running the communications department. And I could tell immediately, I'm like, oh, this lady don't take no <laughs> I'm not getting on Finney's bad side. <laughs> well, you know, that was with, you know, and as much as I love Howard Dean, because this was at the DNC under Howard Dean, you know, you kind of had to get in his face a little bit <laughs> to try oh, yeah. to. <laughs> so I would have so... to attend the morning communications meetings as a representative from the political department. And y'all, I would just sit there. I'm like, I'm just here to take notes, just pass the notes back to the political director because Karen ran a tight ship. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, so for me, I was, when I got out of college, I was working at a facility. It was in the kind of, uh, downtown LA, Pasadena, and it was a minimum security facility for teenage girls. Uh, and these were girls who were incarcerated they, with their children because they were either pregnant or had uh, very small children. And so as part of their deal, they were allowed to be in this residential facility and they're part of it. There was a school as part of it. I loved it, but it was, it was incredibly hard. And one of the things that made it so difficult was that a lot of these young women you know, their learning had learning challenges that were related to many of them had been um, sexually abused. Uh, they had been in gangs and they had, because this was a time, this was the early 90s uh, when, you know, we saw a real explosion and an understanding of gang and gang culture in uh, LA. I went to UCLA. Uh, and, and girls were, you know, this was a big thing, right? That uh, women, young women were, could be just as violent, frankly. What frustrated me was this, this facility would classify a lot of these young women as having learning disabilities that they didn't have as a way to get more money. And I was really angry about that because I felt like, you know, you're, these kids already have disadvantages and you're, you know, to be listed as learning challenge or learning disabled, that's a whole other they mark that at that time in particular was just going to set them, set them back even farther. You know, when you're 20, you're like, well, I'm going to do something about this. <laughs> so I went to work for Alan Cranston, who was one of the two senators uh, in California back then. And because I decided I want to get in politics and, and then Bill Clinton was running for president and I heard him uh, give a speech where he talked about gangs specifically I felt like he really understood what I had seen, which was these weren't bad kids. These were kids who'd been raised in a really horrible situation. And so from there, I joined the Clinton campaign and or went to the convention, joined, ended up joining the campaign and found myself on January 21st as a deputy press secretary for Hillary Clinton, working for the one of the most amazing women, uh, Maggie Williams, who was our chief of staff. Uh, 
and Hillary. And it was, I'll just say, and then I'll, I'll say the rest is history, but, you know, working for a strong, amazing woman like Hillary to be, you know, 24 years old and have a, a staff of all these amazing women was so empowering. I feel so blessed to have had that experience early in my career because I really never had any seen that again in terms of, you know, such a, a been part of a staff of so many really strong women. We had a couple of men, you know, just to even it out. But it was it was just a phenomenal experience. And so from there, I just, the rest is history in terms of my love of politics and belief that it is a way, it is a form of service. I mean, it, you know, it is a way to try to really affect change on the things that we know need to be changed. Mm-hmm. And I feel you on having that strong women's representation as a boss. Congresswoman Shelley Berkeley, she was my first boss, and I'm glad that she was because it shaped just who I am, how I interact with people politically, with my colleagues so much because I saw how Shelley interacted with people and that you could still be a strong woman and get things done. And we know this year we have lots of strong women running. A record-breaking number of women are running for Congress. We have Senator Harris as a VP nominee. But we also know when women run, they have to experience the sexism, the misogyny, the racism. So Karen, you've done a lot with Vote for Her and Win with Black Women. Tina Times Up has done a lot of research around this. So let's talk about the work that your organizations are seeing this year and why it was important for you all to push back. And Karen, we'll start with you for this one. Okay, sure. So as you may know, there was a, a group of uh, Black women, some of the I, that I was honored to be proud of, part of with Donna Brazil, Mignon Moore, uh, Star Jones, just a, a phenomenal group, uh, Melanie Campbell, that got together some of the, you know, leaders in in politics and powerful black women to press the case for a black female vice president. Early on, we we decided we weren't going to press for a specific candidate, but we really felt it was important both behind the scenes with the Biden campaign and publicly to be pushing and changing the narrative about the viability of a black woman, because some of the initial reporting, as Tina knows so well, was a bit dismissive of the idea of a black woman. And, you know, Stacey Abrams was being criticized for being too bold in saying, yes, I would want that job, right? Which right. Right. Which, which we would, would never say, say about yep. a man. Yep. Of course. And we'd say, oh, go on, bro. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, and we had the opportunity to, um, you know, really engage with the campaign. And obviously we got a black woman and but one of the things that was happening, um, also on the board of Ultraviolet, was a real recognition, and nay, Ralph, frankly, um, that whoever this woman was going to be, she was going to need to have somebody, people were going to have to have her back, <laughs> to quote <laughs> Tina. Um, and so, you know, actually, and then that last week, right before the announcement got so bad that a dear friend to many of us, Jotaka Edie, just said, just ca- called a Zoom call. Like she just emailed every as many her friends as she says and said, invite other women. And we ended up with about 200 women on a Zoom call, and we agreed 
we will, we're not going to let this happen. We're not going to, you know, because the criticisms, you know, what tends to happen with women is that the criticisms focus on personality traits, not policy or substance. And that's exactly what we were hearing. Oh, she's too, essentially they were saying she was too uppity, right? You know, she rubs people the wrong way. She's this, she's that. And so from there, when with black women, they just kept going. We meet every Sunday on Zoom and we, you know, social media and, you know, we've done a couple of open letters. We did a thing on uh, what's at stake. You know, Donald Trump said, what have you got to lose? So we did that. We try to do in uh, working with Vote for Her, which is another amazing project where, uh, and Tina can help me on this one. I mean, I was approached by Hillary Rosen, but Tina and Hillary and uh, Cecile and a whole group of women leaders got together and said, we're going we're gonna to make sure this time, because frankly, we didn't have this in 2016, to create a structure to fight back uh, on what we knew were going to be sexist, racist attacks. And so there again, meeting, you know, meeting daily uh, and focusing on what can we do on social media? What can we do publicly to push back, whether that is joint letters or talking with reporters or, um, you know, really trying to change the narrative and to call out and be very uh, prescriptive about why this is sexist and racist for those who might not realize that just their language, right? And even because what we find is, you know, there's, it's a spectrum, right? This one end, it's Donald Trump saying, we can't have a socialist woman president, which is just obscene. And some of the other, you know, he tried to use the birther thing on Kamala again, as he did with uh, President Obama. And we said, nope, we're not going to, he's still doing it, but we at least were able to shut it down or your talk about it. And then the spectrum of, you know, look, there are plenty of folks who say things that they don't realize are sexist or racist. And you have to call that out and say, you know, misogyny much. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. I want that on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, and also I think just the sisterhood of women and, and calling on women to use our power. And our, we have so much power in our voices, in our votes, and in our networks. And particularly in COVID, tapping into our networks is so important to say, hey, go, you got to go vote. You got to help call this thing out that just happened and engaging women uh, nationally. And it's been really exciting to see. And we got to figure out how we keep it going. Imagine that our democracy is a dashboard. The way it's going right now, lights are flashing, alarms are blaring, warning us that it is time to check our systems. That's why I want to tell you about the latest podcast from the nation called System Check. On System Check, host Melissa Harris-Perry and Dorian Warren sit down to diagnose and repair our malfunctioning political system. System Check is a weekly show that asks, what would it be like to break free from the oppressive systems that are holding us down? And it's unapologetically rooted in progressive Black culture and politics. From the movement for Black lives to the fight for climate justice, from the unjust immigration regime to the unfinished voting rights struggle, Dorian and Melissa want to know, how are you living in 
working around, smashing through, or recreating the systems that shape your life. System Check just launched, and by listening to the trailer, I can honestly tell you, I know I'm gonna be hooked. The banter between Melissa and Dorian on some of today's hottest topics is enjoyable, informative, and relatable. It's like having a great socially distant Saturday night dinner conversation with your friends. I know you'll enjoy System Check too. So don't wait. Subscribe to System Check on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods for new episodes every Friday. Tina, I want to talk about this fact 25% of coverage of Kamala Harris reference racist or sexist stereotypes, in large part because of coverage of how President Trump had characterized her. What else did you all see at times up with the coverage of not only Senator Harris, but women this election? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, what we started, you know, was... um, uh, Actually, a nonpartisan effort at Time's Up now. So vote for her is a partisan effort that I do in my off hours, <laughs> but, but, time, <laughs> but at Time's Up, we started, you know, a nonpartisan effort through Time's Up Now um, called We Have Her Back, right, to call out and watch for what's happening, not just in the VP race, but sort of down ballot as well in ca- several key races and also including Republican candidates like Joni Ernst or Susan Collins. Um, and we actually have um, Edelman, you know, data and intelligence has been running like a watch room, war room for us, you know, every day. So every morning we get a report from them about what happened both in mainstream media and in social media across the board. And sadly, what we predicted would happen did happen. You know, astonishingly, you know, we I tell the story a lot because it's so illustrative of, of what happens. We launched this, as Karen knows, on Friday, August 6th. You know, we sent a memo saying we have her back from, you know, across the board women leaders to newsrooms and editors, you know, call, saying we were going to watch for this. Literally 24 hours later, the New York Times ran a Maureen Dowd piece that likened um, the uh, Walter Mondale, Geraldine Ferraro moment as Geraldine Ferraro waiting for the wrist corsage to go to the prom with Walter Mondale. And then the LA Times ran an article. I remember that. Yeah. Same day, LA Times ran an, art- ran an article likening the VP race to the Bachelor and the Oval Office to the ultimate yes. fantasy suite. Oh. I mean, that one just blew my mind. <laughs> right? I mean, it's on so many levels. <laughs> and then, like Karen said, it continued from there. We tracked it. There was the birtherism. There was, you know, more recently calling her a monster, you know, calling her phony from the beginning. And remember, you know, these are words that aren't sexualized per se. But when you call a Black woman who's running for vice president phony, you're just as a dog whistle to all the things that people believe. She's a phony because black women don't belong in a position that high, right? It's the reason why I would submit we don't have a single black woman Fortune 500 CEO right now. Not a single one. Because what happens in this kind of discourse seeps into every part of our culture, right? And it affects how we think about women leadership in all sorts of realms, not just in the political realm. And then to your point, Ashante, on the, on the data, we actually, Edelman did a report for us comparing the two weeks of coverage after Senator Harris was announced and comparing her to the Pence and Kane moment from four years ago. And, you know, we found that like in that two weeks, 
Um, you know, there were 11,000 online articles that used biased language about Senator Harris, reaching a potential 326 billion people, 21 million people actively engaged with that kind of stuff, like, you know, actually, you know, repeating it. Um, and, you know, what you found, what we found was, you know, a quarter of it was blatant racist misogyny. Two thirds of the coverage just mentioned her race or her sex or her personal life in some fashion or another, you know, as compared to 5% for Pence and Kane. And that tells you two things. One, it tells you we have so normalized white men running for that office that we don't talk about it, right? When, we, when she runs, it's all of a sudden, it occupies two thirds of the coverage. And the second thing is, if we're spending two thirds of the coverage on her personal life, her personal characteristics, her race, her gender, we are not talking about her issues. I mean, more people could probably tell you that she wears Converse sneakers than could tell you she was the state attorney general of California, right? And that's the double bind that, you know, women candidates, you know, are, are under, that they, you know, are being called out for things that shouldn't matter in making a selection, and they don't get the chance to talk about the issues that really do matter. And, and finally, they can't call it out, right? It shouldn't be on the women candidates to call it out, because if they do, then they're whiny and they can't take stand the heat in the kitchen. Um, that's why we have to do it, right? So as you know, we have to as advocates, as activists, as women who care about women's leadership, we should take that on. And that's what we're trying to do is constantly call it out. You know, we got Peggy Noonan this weekend, like it's happening again. Her 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 racist, sexist article, she's criticizing and saying, you know, Kamala Harris is somehow not serious because she's dancing and, you know, in her you know, enthusiastic in her um, campaign speeches. We got a president who is mocking people and dancing and, you know, doing all sorts of things from the podium, you know, with the with Air Force One behind him. And and is a super spreader. I mean, let's be honest. If you want to talk about seriousness in a pandemic is discouraging people from doing the one thing all the scientists say is important wearing a mask, right? So I, you know, it, the, and Tina's so right. And this is such an important point because by the way, she was dan It's not like she was dancing in the middle of a foreign policy speech. Right. She was dancing, <laughs> right? At a rally really where you're trying to get people feeling good and excited. And, and so it's just, but, you know, this is the double bind that, that women face. And, you know, the Barbara Lee Family Foundation has done just some amazing research over the years looking at the challenges that women candidates have to face uh, as well as, you know, just to be taken seriously. And what are the things that you have to do to make sure as a female candidate that, you know, the way I liken it is that as a messenger, that, that things don't get caught in the channel. So, and, and so much of it is around likability, right? <laughs> okay, likability. Yep. And you see people say it in focus groups, well, I just don't like her. But here's the thing, people will vote for a man that they don't like they, if they think he's qualified. They won't vote for a woman if they don't like her. And, and likability is such a nebulous emotional decision that people make. You know, in, in the research, people have tried to nail down, well, what does that really mean? It's everything from she didn't have the right earrings on, her hair, her outfit, her, you know, she she didn't smile enough to, 
maybe not liking something substantive. And so for these women candidates, think about that. You're, all of that has to go into how you present yourself just to be heard, just to be taken seriously. And for black women, we know it's even more nefarious because we've got all the racist dog whistles and tropes. Uh, and, you know, it's very intentional, the attacks that uh, Trump and others have been making on Senator Harris, as, as Tina was pointing out, you know, phony. It's also around, it tends to be around kind of the appropriateness of our behavior. And that's really what, what Peggy Noonan was doing and saying, you know, that's what the angry black woman trope is all about right? That you're out of control, that you're acting inappropriately, right? Versus, you know, and once you get tagged with that it is a way to just completely discount you and discount anything you say. And Trump is also trying, you know, what they have, what we've also heard is a lot of trying to discount. He has, I wrote a piece on this for the Daily Beast uh, last week with black women in particular, it's their intelligence, Maxine Waters has a low IQ. That's absolutely not true, right? And 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 going after Senator Harris for you know being unqualified. I mean, he did a speech where he said she's not qualified. Ivanka Trump's qualified. My daughter's qualified, but she's not qualified. I you know so this not qualified. These sort of and again, it is about attacking their intelligence, legitimacy, credibility, uh, and and. Tina knows the research better than I do. All of these things go towards just undermining the seriousness of, you know, taking this woman, particularly a black woman, a Latina woman, an Asian American, any woman of color uh, seriously and, and discounting that you should be listening to what they have to say. Well, and wait, that's why we've got to call it out because people don't even recognize they're doing it. I mean, you got Frank Bruni in the New York Times. He wrote a piece, you know, shortly after Senator Harris was announced talking about the fact that she didn't make him cry, right? <laughs> that that was, that was the way in which he was sort of disappointed, you know, in her and her selection because she didn't make him cry enough. I don't know when that was the criteria the last time we were thinking about a male candidate. So somebody who's even, you know, thinks of himself as a progressive, you know, people don't even recognize when they're doing it and when they're hearing it. And that's what's wrong, you know, in our broader culture, right? And that's the point that it, it ex the toxicity of this expands not just in the political realm. It affects how we think about women in our own lives or how, you know, it goes down to like, you know, I, I keep saying this is like the restaurant server who thinks she might want to re manage that restaurant someday. And whether the owner thinks she's capable of doing it. Well, she's a black woman and he's listening to all this stuff, a black, black woman's leadership. It affects how he views her and how he judges her and her capacity and her capabilities for the future. And it really makes me crazy because our kids, our young daughters are watching this. And, and you know, sons, and our and sons, their boys. you know, it, it is shaping the future if we don't call it out and we don't change the culture. Both of you are so right. We have to call it out. I remember I was doing an interview after Senator Harris was selected and the reporter asked me, a woman reporter, so what do you think when people say she's not black enough? No. And I responded, <laughs> you have no idea how offensive that question is. And she said, excuse me? I said, that question is offensive. What is Senator Harris? She is smart. She is accomplished. She gets things done. She excites people. So when you're telling me, oh, 
people think she's not black enough, what you're telling me is that you don't associate those qualities with black women, that you oh, have implicit bias go, about the way black yeah. women should be. So black women cannot be all of those things. She has to be what you think black women are. And then she said, I'm never going to ask that question Good again. I said, you, you shouldn't. Thank you. Good right for you. on. And like, that is exactly. Good for you. What we need to do is, and it's hard to do when you're in the moment, you know, and Karen knows this because she sits on those panels on TV a lot. And, you know, one of the things we need to have happen is calling it out in the moment, right? Don't let, you know, that, yeah, that casual comment go by, you know, um, on election night, on debate night, you know, that people think, people think they're trying to get a cute soundbite in, you know, that'll go viral, right? You got, we got to call that out right then when it happens. It's not cute. It's not funny. It's not, you know, clever to go, you know, to go out and be clickbait for folks. You know, it's pretty, da it's damaging in exactly the way that you just said that. So that, that was fantastic. I called our comms director afterwards. I said, so I don't think she's going to call me back again <laughs> ever for an interview. But well, shame on her. That's, that's true. true. Because you gave it straight and you gave it honest. You And you helped her learn something. And I told right? our comms director and she said, I can't believe she asked you that. You were absolutely right to do what you did. Like our comms director was so upset. She's a white woman. And she's like, <laughs> I would never even say that. I would never ask that. But it's what we have to do. So we know that this is a key election, but we know there's going to be a lot more elections down the road where we're going to have women running and we need to stand up. We need to fight. We need to help them. So Tina, Karen, tell us how can we stay involved with all the work that you're doing? We'll start with Tina. So here's the thing. For in, the, in the next, you know, we're eight days out. Everybody has to not take their foot off the pedal. Um, don't believe the polls that say everything's, you know, you know, going well for, you know, candidates that you care about. Um, we have to get out and vote. We have to make sure that we support people who are standing on long lines because voter suppression is real and it is happening and it is especially being directed at people of color and at women. You know, you can see the neighborhoods where there's long lines, um, but we got to make sure people stand there and vote. You know, whatever hurdles we have to overcome in voter suppression right now are nothing compared to what our predecessors went through, right? You know, sort of the women who fought for the vote, the, you know, the black leaders that we had who, you know, John Lewis getting beat to a pulp, you know, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, so, you know, in honor of all of them, we got to get out and vote. And then here's the other thing. I'll add one more thing, which is after Election Day. It is really important to keep this level of engagement up forever. This is not like a one-time thing. We don't all get to go home. Even if, you know, we like the results of November 4th, we don't get to go home. Um, you know, if Gloria Steinem, I learned from her, she said, you know, the most dangerous time in, a prog in move progress moving forward is after you have a win, right? And she likened it, her, her example was after the Civil War, you know, after emancipation, that's when lynching and Jim Crow came in, right? Because you let your guard down because you think you've won something. And all of a sudden, the backlash happens and the other forces come in. It's what happened to us in the Obama administration after we won in 2009. Everybody went home. They just figured he was going to fix it. We experienced this. You know, he'll fix it. He's in the White House now. We can all sit back. And as a result, nobody shows up for the midterms and we lose the Congress two years later. We cannot let that happen. 
And that's not just at the federal level. You know, one of the things that we have to get smarter about as progressives is, you know, we got to go down the ballot. You know, we got to we got to fight next year in the off cycle governor races like in Virginia. We've got to be in the state house races. We've got to be in the midterms. You know, we have got to keep this level of activity up now for the long haul because that's what we're in for. We don't have the federal courts anymore. You know, and we could we could go off on Amy Comey Baird too, but we don't, we do not have the federal courts as a vehicle for change anymore, right? So we're gonna have That's to make a podcast that conversation in itself. Absolutely, <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Because if they take our health care away, I mean, that's right. And I think reminding people over and over again that what's at stake isn't just at stake in this election. They're always trying to take these things away, right? They're always trying to fight these things. I mean, think about how unrelenting they have been on trying to repeal the uh, Affordable Care Act. And I love, I have to tell you, I was so happy to see Barack Obama on the campaign trail. It just made me feel better. Always, always. You're like, dad's home, dad's home. Yeah, it's like, oh, thank God, right? He he is just telling oh, it he's plain, laying it out. You can tell when he's right? he, that the whole the whole <laughs> Chinese bank account. He is loving that riff. <laughs> oh oh yeah, you could, and that was wonderful to see. But one of the, you know, as he pointed out, they've been saying they're gonna re- repeal and replace and talk about the replace for four years, and where is it? So, and it's because Democrats have fought tooth and nail day after day that they haven't been able to repeal health care. And I think it's important that we also remind people that the work is ongoing. I mean, one of the things I'm doing some work for the Congressional Black Caucus, and one of the challenges we see in some of these down ballot races is that some voters don't know what Democrats in Congress have been fighting for. They may not know what Democrats in their state legislature have been have been doing. So I completely agree with Tina that you know, yes, for the next eight days, we got to fight with everything we've got, remind people to vote, remind, you know, if you can vote early, vote early, make a plan, right? If you, and if you can't go early and you're, you can't mail it in early or drop it off in a ballot box, then make the time, you know, go stand in line if you can. And I, and I, I mean, I understand that for a lot of working folks, that is hard. That is a hard ask. Uh, but we need you because your voices matter the most uh, because we need everybody out there voting and we're going to vote for the things that affect our lives. Right. So and we're and again, reminding us what is at stake. You know, if you want criminal justice reform, real criminal justice reform, by the way, Trump is very duplicitous when he talks about that. If you care about the environment, your health care the economy, you know, a real plan for COVID for heaven's sakes. I mean, this is absurd what is happening around COVID. So reminding people why we're voting is really important. And then as Tina said, you got to stay engaged. And I think one of the other things Ashanti, I'll say that's so important is remember that, you know, voting is our power. And part of that power also means after we elect people, we get to ask for the receipts to say, have you done what I've voted you in to do. Let me see the proof, right? That's our right. And so that's part, to my mind, that's part of what it means to stay engaged is to stay engaged in the fight, make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do. Cause if they're not, then we might have to make some changes go as we go along and just reminding ourselves that 
it is not a one day activity. It is about, you know, staying engaged throughout the process to make sure that we continue to make progress on the things that we care about. And if, if we don't, let's try to understand why and what can we do about it. Um, and, and I think you were just reminding ourselves we have more power than we realize. Absolutely. When we were on one of our Win With Black Women calls, Mignon Moore said, voting is not an event, it's a lifestyle. And I said, that is so true. Tina, Karen, thank you so much. I need to have both of you back yes. on because we have so much more to talk about. <laughs> Love to come back. Love to come back. That would be so fun. So thank fun to be with you guys. Oh, thank you both for your time. And everyone, hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to your pods. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, you can check us out at www.thebgguide.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them at wondermedianetwork.com. Until next time, Brown Girls.